So, uh, some of you are feeling a little anxious right now. Um, you should be feeling anxious because you're worried we're going to charge you extra for that. Um, wow, that was really awesome. Thank you guys for leading us like that. Um, the other thing you should be anxious about is, is how many of you today said some version of, man, we're so glad to have you back. And, and the reason I should make you nervous, if, if, if your life is made more stable by my presence, you, you may need to rethink your life. Like, that's, that's scary for you and me. Um, if, you, if you somehow feel like, hey, things are normal, Chris is back. Um, so it's, it's um, great to be back uh, from this time of, of rest and refreshment and remembering. Um, so the return from sabbatical, I, uh, I took these six weeks in time to coordinate perfectly with the unrest in Eastern Europe and uh, the eventual war that's going on now in Ukraine. Um, it, it is a little strange to me that the last sermon before I left, someone pointed out to me this morning that the last sermon before I left, I said, by the time I get back, we could be involved in a world war. And sorry, I mean, I, I didn't mean to do anything. If I caused that, let, uh, I, I apologize for that. The, um, uh, what, a, what a scary, fascinating time once again, as is always the case in the world. Um, despite all that's been going on, you may remember last time I left, there was a big hurricane. So I don't think these are my fault. I really don't. I, I just, um, they, 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 it's an interesting time to try to go and rest and relax during stuff like that. Um, despite all that's going on, I got some good time away with, uh, first, I will comment on getting time away with my bride and with my uh, family and, and dealing with <coughs> the, um, uh, just even for us as a family, recognizing that now uh, when we, next, next one, when we go away as a family, sometimes uh, there's only five of us. And so uh, you, some of you people are at that stage in life where you're experiencing some of that too, where there should be seven of us, and there's only five, and, but it's still an awesome experience um, to go and, just, and just, just get to away from all of the stressors and, and all of the expectations and requirements and that kind of stuff, and uh, keep going. Uh, that was, we got to do some fun stuff with everybody, um, and then I went on, got to get time with Uncle Mac, I'll reference him again in a minute, and, uh, and then with these two uh, jokers going and camping in central Texas, which includes, of course, eating steaks cooked over the grill, uh, over the fire, which is kind of the whole purpose. Hold up. Also, kind of the purpose of camping, right, um, is to eat steaks cooked over the fire. Um, also got special time with some family and friends, uh, some friends and mentors, um, uh, like the Moors were in town, and then uh, keep going. And uh, I'll talk more about this in a minute. Cody and I were suffering for Jesus um, in Montana together. Um, hanging out with, again, with family, getting to, with, uh, and all the people who, now when I say the family gathers, sometimes it's more like 12 people or 15 people, because, you know, college students. So, uh, and then even in town, getting some time with some new friends who are part of our church now, and their and they're bed and breakfast, and we just, we just had a sweet time. Um, for me, this is a big part of what, uh, what sabbatical is, is getting away and getting to re-engage to invest in the people who I haven't had the opportunity to invest in in the way I would like or, or things like that. Also for me, um, the, the major part is it gives me a chance to set aside times where I can't escape from myself and I can't escape from God, which those are the two people I like to escape from the most. 
Um, and so, uh, again, a couple of opportunities during these six weeks to get away um, uh, and to go up into the mountains for part of it. Like I said, there was my office uh, that time. And then I was suffering a little bit more there, to be perfectly honest, in Oklahoma. Um, this was the house made out of mud and straw. And uh, you can go to the next picture. That's literally like behind the stucco. That's what it looks like. Um, and this is where I went for true isolation, silence, and solitude. Um, and this is always a fascinating experience for me because um, those of you who know me know that I, I am not an anxious person. Like, anxiety is not one of my things. Um, but under these settings, and hold off, don't, don't do the next one yet. Under these settings in Oklahoma, going off to be truly by myself, where there's, there is no one around, I have nothing to do. Um, I can do okay when I'm alone so long as I've got stuff to do. In fact, I love that sometimes. Um, I could do okay um, uh, not have anything to do so long as I've got people. Um, that also works out well for me, but you strip both of those away at the same time, and what I learn is there's not a lot left of me after those are gone. And so truly, I will tell you, the, the first 12 or 24 hours, um, for me, and this is the second time I've done this, I have full-blown anxiety attacks um, every time I think about what I'm doing. Uh, the fact that I think about, <coughs> I'm here, and I've got nothing to do. And there's no one here, and there's not going to be today, or tomorrow, or the next day, or the day after that. And, and the, the amount of fear that creates in me and the amount of anxiety that creates in me, is, it's, it's honestly impressive. If, I mean, it would disturb you if you had seen me standing in that little one-room one house with the shakes hyperventilating, just trying to, like, I couldn't even write at one point. My, the anxiety was so bad at the thought of it. Um, I, I will read to you some of my journal before I think we're done with Second Peter. Um, in regards to some of this stuff, but, but yeah, just, just realizing um, when I get alone with me and God, it takes a while for me to get used to that idea. Um, the, the panic that comes to realizing I left my watch in the car on purpose, but I forgot to check one last time what time it is. And I don't know how much, to how much longer I have here. Like, I don't know how much longer it is till dark, and I don't know how much longer I've got to entertain myself before it's bedtime. And, and then I, the next day I'm going to get up, and I won't know what time it is, and I won't know how long I've got, and I won't know how long I've got to figure out something to do, and who am I supposed to talk to? And these things are running through my mind um, explosively as I'm wrestling through it. And my first, just like last time, five years ago, my first 24 hours is me writing almost stream of consciousness in a journal because I have to somehow communicate with someone, even if it's a journal that maybe someone will read someday. It's wild to watch us as we interact with God and learn, and learn to center ourselves and, and to be still in the memory that He is God, and we're not. Um, the shoring up concept is a vital part of, I think, even what Second Peter is going to be about, um, but also in our own lives, this message of shoring up, of re-strengthening who we are. It's been interesting to watch during this war in Ukraine going on, to watch, and almost ironically, to watch the Russians make the same blunders as a military force that everyone has made in all of history when they go to war against Russia, um, which is to invade and to outrun their supply lines, to get out ahead of themselves. This is the root of pride. This is the root of what it means to be human, is that we always overestimate our own impact. Like, this will work out. It'll be fine. We'll take the city and, we'll, you know, we'll take the capital in two days. Or maybe not. But we can't even think in those terms. We can't even strategize in our own strength on the idea that this may not go the way we think it should go. It's amazing as a therapist that a lot of modern day therapy is really about centering on yourself as if that's going to help. 
It's just another religious movement. So much of this is saying, how do we, how do we, now, now again, is centering bad? Is, is being still bad? All these things? No, 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 absolutely not. Is, is even meditation, is this bad? No, of course not. But fundamentally, if the only person you're meditating on is you, well, then you're, it's like you're stacking things on top of each other in the middle of the air, hoping that if you keep stacking them, they'll just stay there. That's not how that works. Any of you been skiing? The concept when you go snow skiing is called getting, getting out over your skis. If you've been skiing, you've experienced this. It, it comes from the natural temptation when you, don't feel, when you feel imbalanced is to lean way forward. Feeling, leaning back feels too scary, so you lean forward. And what happens is you lean too far forward and you get out above your skis, you get out ahead of your skis, and you're going down. Fast and hard, it'll blindside you. You have no idea because your instincts tell you, this is smart if I just lean way forward. Boom! And then there's a yard sale as you're going down the hill, right? <laughs> this is a, that's what's happening. And we watch it happen. This is the error of humanism. It is the root error of humanism. Is that, I'll, listen, if I just trust in me, things are going to work out fine. And we find out, nope, see, it doesn't. It's what Putin's finding out right now the hard way, really, really hard. And a lot of people are discovering this really, really hard in the world right now. And what's amazing to me is they don't seem to be learning it. They're still stuck on this idea like, oh, so you know, my mistake, I just didn't trust in myself enough. That was my mistake. That was not your mistake. Any of you have fruit trees? We got anybody who has fruit trees growing in their yards or in their, on their property? Have you noticed that your fruit trees aren't blooming yet? So I always notice fruit trees blooming because they always bloom around my birthday. And so they, they always bloom about then. I love the fact that my, my yard is full of blooms of, of the dogwood trees and the peach trees and the pear trees and all those different things are all blooming when I'm celebrating my birthday. I love that. They're not blooming right now. They're all sitting there. They're just now starting to bud. Why is this? Why is it? They were all bloomed long before this time last year. So I asked my dad, the forestry professor, and at the root, he said the root answer is no one knows. The truth is no one knows why plants do what they do. But fundamentally, he said, probably the most likely answer is they're just kind of gun shy. They all bloomed too early last year, and they got smacked for it. Isn't that where we are? There'll never be another war in Europe. Really? There'll never be anything like a, a, a virus that'll spread around the country and will shut everything down. There's no problem that can be thrown at us that we can't solve. That's, what, that's the truth of man. There's no problem that we've solved the we, world peace. We've got it. I mean, yeah, some of these backward countries, they're always fighting with each other. But, but no, no, not us first world nations, not us Western nations and East, not us European. Like, mm, or it could be all of that's an illusion. It could be that we're right ahead of our skis. And now what's happened is the response to about too many people is to go, I can't trust myself, so I better not bloom. I better not try to produce. I better just stay back. That wasn't your mistake. Your mistake was not trusting in God and recognizing this is, these are his issues to deal with with us. When I slow down, it causes me to realign with Christ. So often that's what's happened. I've got out ahead of Christ on something. I'm having a conversation with Grant not that long ago, and he referenced that and while we were talking, Grant Seifried, and he referenced how easy it is for him to get ahead of Christ in regards to something. It reminds myself of his ultimate sufficiency I get busy and I get out ahead of my skis. Here's what, here's what we do. This, this, is, this idea, I have to be reminded that the way you grow the tree is by tending the soil. That's how you grow the tree. That's how you get healthy growth is by tending the soil. Going in at the basics, at the foundation, shoring up, 
making things healthy at the level that we can do that. You know what most churches in America do? They tie stuff onto the limbs, and they call that growth. They tie new events or new activities or new programs or cool new things, and they tie them on the limbs, and they go, look at all this cool stuff that's growing with us. Those things are dead. They may look okay, they may look good to the moment, but you show up and they're actually dead. They're not, they're not really anything going on there. The reminder to me always, usually the work that needs to be done with the branches, at least in my life, is what? Pruning. I need more stuff cut off, not more things tied on, which then allows healthier growth, a deeper sense of strength and growth and longevity, and that's what these things like sabbaticals are for. That's what Sabbath is for. The once-a-week Sabbath is for. It's what the, the times when we take a break, that's what that's for. I get busy, and I get out there. I can count on the pattern that when I get still, God is going to remind me that healthy growth starts in the soil and in the roots, not the branches. So I need to reprioritize my life and my schedule. One of my disciplines when I go on sabbatical is the week before I go, I delete everything off the repeating uh, aspect of my calendar. So that all the things I do every week that are on repeat, they all get deleted. And then I have to go back at each one of them and add them back in to make sure, okay, should this still be here? Is this a good thing to be here? If, and what's not on here? What's obviously missing from my weekly repeating schedule that should be here? So let me encourage all of you who are tiptoeing back in, especially those who are online uh, watching today or at other times, um, who are only tiptoeing back in. I think part of shoring up for the believer is being back with the brotherhood and the sisterhood of the faith, getting back in church. And not just presence, engagement, investment. Um, I think it's time for that. It's time to get back, to get over the excuses. Um, if you came back and you're still just kind of orbiting, you're just kind of here testing out the waters. Um, if you need a time of rest, absolutely. But if you're just testing out the waters um, to see if God's going to do something supernatural without you having to invest, don't count on it. Um, it's time to commit to the, brother, the brothers and sisters of the faith. We just, the second half of the week, this weekend, um, we did a spiritual gifts retreat yesterday and the day before for some pe a handful of people. And some of you have been through that um, as well. But going through that and the reminder of how interdependent we are, <clears throat> the Apostle Paul uses the idea of a body on purpose. We're interdependent. When we go take our show on the road and we think, I don't need my source, I don't need this thing, I can, I'm like the liver and I don't need the whole body, I'm too important, the body can't survive without me, that's how important I am. So I'm taking my show on the road and I'm going to go out there and do my liver stuff without the rest of the body because I'm just that important. Well, bad news, the body suffers. Also, the liver doesn't do so well either, right? It does fine until the first cat finds it. And then, you know, it's kind of over at that point. So this is a, I, I, I want to welcome you to back. I want to welcome you. I'm the one who's coming back, not you, but I'm going to welcome you anyway. <clears throat> um, and I wanted to figure out a way to do it. And then this morning during communion, um, through the, uh, the lexicon, the, the church tradition of what gets read each Sunday, today's reading was the perfect um, reading for welcoming all of us uh, back in a new way, um, which I think is key. It comes from Isaiah 55. It's not going to be on the screen. You can look it up in your Bible or you can just sit and listen <clears throat> and soak in Isaiah's words. These are God's words through Isaiah. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, 
and your labor for that which is not satisfying. Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I make him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know. <clears throat> a nation that did not know you shall run to you. Because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. Let the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. This is the reminder again. Return to him. Return back to what he has for us. His portion is our delight. These messages of shoring up, investing in the roots, you're going to see those um, it's, it's interesting, those, some of that is a big confirmation for me, um, as God is constantly reminding me of this pattern, and I should know it's coming, but, but as we look at our church and at the, what we're doing in the staff, of what we're doing with construction, what we're doing in ministry is, is going to be mirrored and has been mirrored recently by this thinking. How do we invest and shore up and, and to get to do the things that, to prepare us to do what God has, has for us to do and what God is likely going to have for us to do, which only he knows. We know it's good to be still with him, learning to invest in what is closest and nearest, along with him, our family and our friends, etc. Any questions? Not yet, huh? Okay, so on to the preachers who took the pulpit uh, while I was gone. I intentionally chose new faces for most of you. Um, if you happen to know who they were, that's awesome. That was probably a bonus for you um, to get to be reestablished with some of those people. But I wanted, for example, I wanted Paul to be able to take a break as well. Um, it would be natural to have him speak when I'm gone, but also when I'm gone like that, he's got a ton more responsibilities he has to handle. And, uh, and so not, didn't want to overload him with that kind of stuff. Um, we'll be looking at that as we look into to Second Peter some more and some of the rest of you. But really just to bring in brand new, some brand new faces for the most part. Um, except for the D-Now weekend when Chris Sherrod taught. Um, the feedback I got, and I just want you to hear this, the feedback that I got from these men was how hospitable we are, how quick our staff is to serve and to take care of them. And so what I want to say to you is, uh, though I did not intend to bring a series of men in, in here who all had been of different parts of my life, to give you a little bit of the life and times of Chris Legg through the uh, embarrassing stories told by pastors who he's had in the past. Um, that is how it worked out, but I cannot tell you how grateful I am that, that these mentors and spiritual fathers of mine and friends, um, that they were treated so well and so well loved by you. And so thank you for that. This is a, um, it, Uncle Mac was not kidding or exaggerating when he said that in 60-something years of doing pastoral work, he had never met a church as welcoming and servant-hearted as this one. Um, and he was including the churches where he served as pastor um, all those years. And he was, he was blown away by it. Um, he was super proud of this church with that. Um, so not in any order. These messages spoke to me, and I think you're going to spot the pattern. As I went through and listened to them all kind of together, um, and near the end of my sabbatical, I listened to, each of, listened to them all within the same week. 
and hearing the pattern that was there, which maybe you spotted in the midst of it, maybe not, maybe listening to them all together gave this to me. But we started, uh, I'm going to start with uh, that we had a sermon one morning delivered by Shaphan, Josiah's secretary and scribe. Um, it was, Chris Sherrod was introducing us to him. Um, and, and the message here was that we need God's Word. And when we have it, we should be changed by it. Um, teaching in Montana to these students, um, one of the things that, that, that was stuck me was a line from the book we were using, um, the author, Dr. Moo, who says, um, the, the New Testament, I'm going to paraphrase it because I don't have it exact, the New Testament is unaware of a gospel that does not lead to application. The, the, the New Testament is unaware of a gospel that does not initiate change in us. There is no such thing. It, the, the gospel always creates change in us. Um, it always brings change in our lives. And, and we need that. There's no such thing as that. We should always be in response to his word. The New Testament does not know a gospel that does not lead to a response. We should be changed by it. Unpacking the 107th Psalm, Gary Brandenburg introduced us to the word hasad, grace, one of the words that can mean grace in the Hebrew Scripture. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for this hasad endures forever. Gary taught us that in the desert, or in the prison, or in the storm, or under whatever conditions we're under, this is what we need. We need this grace from God. In the 142nd Psalm, John Sherman unpacked um, the, the message from the cave, so to speak. That David in the cave sends out to us this message, God will hold you fast. I liked the phrase that we are in the double grip of God. He will deliver us and deal bountifully with us. His portion is for us. And we need to be getting together all the more as the day is approaching. As we sense and face whatever the world has coming um, it's even that much more important that we gather together. Unpacking the 67th Psalm, Lyle uh, Skeels pointed out to us this concept of God's blessing, His shalom, which we really don't have an equivalent word in English for shalom. We use the word peace, but it doesn't really do it. Probably the word shalom should be understood as more of God. That's what my blessing is to you. If I say shalom to you, what I'm saying is more of God in your life. More and more of this God and what He brings and the blessings of His harvest, the harvests of now and the harvests of the future, more and more of trusting in Him regardless of what the future holds. With the 23rd Psalm, Kent Pate, um, listening to him, I heard so much of, of where I learned to emphasize the identity messages of Scripture, that not, not merely activity, but identity the 23rd Psalm, which he unpacked in a way unlike any, most anybody would ever unpack the 23rd Psalm, but unpacked it as an identity statement. We need God from beginning to ending. Not our own powers, not our own abilities. What we need is Him and to find our identity and our relationship with Him above anything else. Also from Kent, you got a testimony that my ADHD tendencies have always been here. It made me chuckle when I heard him ask this crowd, of all people, this crowd full of people, um, you may not know this about Chris, but sometimes, like, he kind of, when he was a middle schooler, he was kind of always in motion and always had stuff going on and was always asking questions and was never satisfied. And I, I was laughing because I was imagining a whole room full of people going, no, no, we're, we're aware. No, we're, we get it. We've, we've seen it. 
that we find our identity relationship with him. And then not only do you get the testimony about those tendencies in me, but in, in getting, if you got to be here last week for Uncle Mac, you got to see where I inherited them from. Uh, you get an idea of where that comes from uh, is, is listening to Uncle Mac uh, at 82 delivering this message and getting more and more excited across the morning. Like it was from first thing in the morning and by, by the end of the sermon, I mean, he was, by the end of the second sermon, he had more energy than I've, I've seen in him in a long time. He was so energized by getting to share the gospel and to talk about the 27th Psalm. Um, he gave two sermons, uh, actually, um, one from the 139th Psalm, which I will talk about in a few minutes. Um, and comment, I want to comment on that. He referenced that one as a reminder to us that God chose us to be winners. This, that simple a message, that God chose us to be winners. Now, now, he didn't mean that, and in the first service, he actually he, he referenced the passage of the second service, but didn't cite it. Um, he didn't mean that as like, this wasn't some raw, raw, Nike commercial kind of thing, like, oh, you're, you're such winners. Um, we would all know how empty that would be, and certainly he would as well. What he was referencing was 1 John 5, 4, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. This is the reference. We, we are chosen by God to be victorious. In fact, being chosen by God, we will be victorious. We feel like we're losing in the moment, but that's not the final judgment. And then unpacking the 27th Psalm for us, that God is the one thing we should be seeking. The one thing. He is our provision. He is our light and our salvation. Now, you probably caught the theme because it wasn't hidden very subtly. We need His Word. We need His grace. We need His peace. We need the identity that He bestows upon us. We need His portion, His provision. We need Him. And everything else is pale by comparison. This was the message that you heard across six weeks. We need Him. Everything else you're trying to plant, Every place else you're trying to plant, stop. Everything else you're trying to hang your identity on, cut it out. Everything else that you want to define yourself with, out of line. This is who he is, and this is what he has for us. I was, I was very gratified by the consistent message, and it's going to be perfect to lead us into Second Peter. As Peter is going to over and over again tell us, no, 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 him, him. You want hope? The message of 2 Peter is one of hope, hope in the knowledge of who he is. Peter's never going to lead us in the hope and the knowledge of who we are, except in who he makes us. So speaking of ADHD, we're now going to be starting on the second letter of the patron saint of those of us who are highly distractible and have impulse control issues, Peter's second letter. It was written by Peter, and I do believe that. We'll unpack at different times the idea that some people think it wasn't written by Peter. I disagree. I'll explain why I disagree. Um, now, I don't mean penned by Peter. I do think there was a different person doing the writing, but I do think it's Peter's letter. Again, there's a lot more to talk about there. Um, I, I think what's interesting about Peter is that we all like him. We all connect to Peter. We see ourselves in Peter. Peter's uh, uh, misunderstanding of Jesus almost all the time, and yet Peter's misunderstanding doesn't keep him from offering up an opinion most of the time. Um, I once heard Peter described as the man who only removed the foot from his mouth in order to insert the other foot. Um, and we all get that. We connect with that. We understand Peter's confused by Jesus. We're confused by Jesus. Peter's confused by the teachings of Jesus. 
We're often confused by the teachings of Jesus. Peter thinks Jesus is unrealistic. We think Jesus is unrealistic. We're, 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 we are, G Peter is the us in the gospel's conversations. He's the one who steps out and sometimes steps out and it's beautiful, right? He steps out and he says something and it's brilliant and it becomes theologically the new way to understand this moving forward. And the very next time Peter speaks, he gets called Satan. It, it is, and we go, yep, I've been there, done that. I do that in every relationship I'm in. Certainly, if I was walking around on earth with Jesus, there would be moments of highlights. Hey, you hit that out of the park. Even, Jesus even hints at, you got really lucky. God must have done that for you because I don't believe you did it. <laughs> then then the very next thing, what Peter says, is absolutely, completely the wrong thing. We connect with that. It was fun for me to teach through this last week. I was teaching high school graduates. So they're, most of them are on their gap year. They're taking a year before going to college. So I was teaching Romans 9 through 16 for 15 hours in three-hour swaths, which is tough to teach that much, especially of those chapters. These are some tough chapters in the book of Romans. And I wasn't there to see how they were taught the first eight chapters. And so there's a real challenge. And one of the challenges is it's easy to teach Peter because we get Peter. We feel like if we knew Peter, we would like to hang out. We would love to go to one of Paul's seminary classes, but Paul doesn't feel like someone you'd want to hang out with, does he? You can be honest about this. Paul just seems like he's in his own little world. And then we just don't follow him. Peter's going to actually reference in 2 Peter how hard it is sometimes to understand Paul. Like, even Peter thought that. that. Sometimes this guy's tough to understand and we read through it and he just doesn't feel very real to us. He, he feels like somebody who always kind of has it together and everyone's afraid of him <coughs> and everyone kind of respects him and looks up to him. If you have that mindset of the Apostle Paul like I did, I really want to recommend your next book be um, N.T. Wright's biography of, of the Apostle Paul. N.T. Wright, who can get into the heart of humans in ways that very few other authors can, explains Paul. I actually almost did not read or listen to this book because I'm thinking, how interesting can a biography on Paul be? I mean, we're just going to hear about all his accomplishments, right? Oh, listen, he, did, he started a church here, and then he started a church here. Oh, and look, he started a church here. Boring, right? That's, he always wins. Let me just tell you, I was not understanding Paul at all. Paul lives on the edge of defeat and despair, on depression. I, I'm not sure not suicidal thought. I had never understood just how broken a man the Apostle Paul is. How his friends turn on him left and right. Whole churches turn on him suddenly. He's not even invited back to some of the churches that he starts. They later tell him, hey, you know what your plans to visit? Why don't you just not? What is that like? He depends on God, he looks to God, but I get the sense of a broken and exhausted man by the end of his life. I, it was fascinating to me to understand Paul more like a David than like a Jesus in so many ways. I, was, I, was, I loved it. So I'm going to highly recommend it to you. We don't wrestle with that with Peter. We see Peter struggle. We see Peter make mistakes. This is, this is meant to be a little tongue-in-cheek, but let me give you an example of what I mean. So when we think about the, the Matthew, so the... the, the uh, historical symbol for Matthew is, um, is this symbol right here. This is the liturgical symbol for Matthew. Is an angel. 
It's a man, a, a human-looking angel with wings. It's always how, how this is the symbol for him. It's always how he's presented. Um, the human nature of Jesus made manifest. The incarnation is his focus. The John symbol is an, is an eagle. Is this, it's a noble picture, the noble bird. And part of this is because they believed back this, at this time that, pe- that, that, um, that eagles could stare at the sun. For, I don't know why they thought that, but they thought eagles could stare at the sun. They were the only animal that could look straight at the sun and not be hurt by that. And they thought John, they, this is why John got that symbol. John is the one who could look straight at God and not flinch and not be burned. That's how they saw him. He's the one who presents Jesus as he is. The higher criticism and the concepts of the Christian faith, the messages that he delivers to us, this is John. And I think the reason we identify with Peter is because in our brain, this is the symbol that we picture for Peter. Next. So the symbol for Peter, I actually joked in the first service, I was like, do you think Peter knew what Jesus' whole face looked like? Or, or do you think that, that Peter could only picture Jesus like this? Because that's how he always saw Jesus. It was like, Peter, no, see, no. I, I, I feel like one of the things they've captured in the chosen well is, is Jesus trying to engage with these young men who are probably even young, much younger than they are in the TV show. But in trying to engage with them and running into the very issues you would run into with a handful of men and women trying to travel along together under him and going, no, no, see, no. We're going to have this conversation again. Didn't we just have this conversation? Didn't I just clarify this and you're still not getting it? This was Peter. But the Peter that we run into in 1 and 2 Peter is a different man. This is a man who now has faced this and understands it. We all love Peter because we identify with him. Um, I I referenced having the, the worse office conditions than sitting outside in the snow in Montana. And yet, in dealing with, in my heart, what's going on, looking ahead at who Peter is and what he's like, and this is what strikes me. Unpacking, where at the end of the book of Romans revealed something to me that I would not have put this way in the past. The gospel of Jesus Christ as presented in the New Testament is not merely, hear this, is not merely your relationship with God can be restored. It is not merely you can be saved. It is very importantly, we can. That there is a whole new family. A whole new family. And this whole new family, is, it includes all the people. It includes everyone who will put their faith in Jesus. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God to salvation. We stop right there, don't we? Because as evangelical Christians, that's what matters, is my salvation, is your salvation, right? But the passage goes on, first for the Jew, and then for the Gentile. This was the shock. This was the shock of the first Christian communities. Is that this gospel salvation isn't just for Jews. It's not just the Jewish Messiah. It's the everyone Messiah. It's the Messiah. He came to save all of us. We are now blending this family. I, I said, in the, I talked about in the first service this distinction um, growing up with a whole family coming from Alabama, where the Auburn Alabama rivalry exists. Okay? I, and I'm coming to Texas and learning that there's this oh, uh, going to, when I went to AM, I'm the first person who went to college who, uh, in my family who didn't get at least one degree from Auburn because my family is a hyper Auburn family. I mean, this, this is a big, big deal to them. Like, it's a, 
Uh, my grandmother, by the time she was 60, was no longer allowed by her doctor to watch Auburn football games because he was authentically afraid it would kill her. She actually believed, this is funny because some of you believe this too, and, I'm, and there's nothing I can do to talk you out of it because it's delusional. Um, she actually believed that watching the game affected it. That when she watched the game, it changed. She would try to plan bathroom breaks during like timeouts because she was afraid if she left the room, it could cost Auburn something important. Um, because that's what the, see, some of you are like, what's what's the problem? Why is that funny? What's the problem? <laughs> David Lake was down here shaking his head like, yeah, but Baylor. It was it was really funny. Like, what are you talking about? My other grandparents had four framed pieces of art on their wall of their house, all of them, anywhere in their house, just four that I know of, a, a painting of him, a painting of her, and then two iron bowl score, scoreboards of where Auburn won by one point. That was on their walls. Like this was what they celebrated in life was this thing. So I come over here, I start going to A&M and people are like, oh, there's this big rivalry between A&M and UT. And I was like, oh man, how many people died this year because of it? And they're like, What? No one died because of it. Like, oh, I thought you said it was a football rivalry. Like, I mean, how many millions of dollars of damage was done by each school to the other school? Like, what are you talking about? No one does that. Like, oh, okay, sorry. You're talking about something very different than a rivalry then because that stuff happens between Auburn and Alabama every year. That kind of stuff happens. All of the stuff that we deal with right now, <clears throat> all of the divisions that our culture is throwing at us, and it is fascinating to watch the world philosophy go-to division. There's not, they're not even subtle about it anymore. There's nothing subtle about this communication anymore. It is everything is about division. You don't understand you. You're different sex. You cannot understand or identify. In fact, the only thing you can know for sure is they're trying to take advantage of you. That's all you can know for sure. Ethnicity, all you can know for sure is that they're trying to take advantage of you. If you're part of a minority, they're trying to take advantage of you. If you're part of the majority, they're trying to undermine you. You just need to know this. We're all here to burn it down. That's what we're all here for. We're all here to burn it down in the division against one another. It is, it is constant now, this message. It's unreal how unrelenting and unsubtle this message is now. There, there's nothing secretive about it. Apparently, the only thing we know for sure about all of us is that we all hate one another at some level. There's something that divides us that truly causes us to hate each other. You know why? Because that's the response of humanism. That's the response of the world to a brand new family. The world will never teach us how to unite two families because it doesn't know how to unite. It only knows how to divide. The world only, this is the only skill the world knows. Here's what's wild. Do you know what all of this division falls under the heading of in the world? If you ask somebody, wait, what is all this? What's happening here? The answer will be some version of, we've got to bring everybody together. And this is your strategy for it? This is your strategy for bringing everybody together is to focus on the fact that we at the deepest, most intrinsic levels, whether we know it or not, hate each other. That's it. That's your, that's your best shot. I asked those students last week if any of them came from a blended family. And of course, a bunch of them did. And I said, how many of you did that go smoothly, blending the families? No one raised their hand, of course. How many of you did it end up well? One young man raised his hand. He goes, I said, okay, tell me about it, because I never see that. How did, how did your blended family come together well? 
And he told a very quick testimony about a couple who in their lost state divorced each other out of the hatred and bitterness and unfaithfulness they had for each other and then got remarried and then got converted to Christianity. They became followers of Jesus Christ. And in that process, then went back to each other in their brokenness before Christ and confessed their sins to each other and recognized all four of us now have a higher calling, a higher purpose than our hurts, our bitterness, and even our divorce. We now have something higher that unites us more than, catch this, more than a divorce divides us. How about that? If you can be united in Christ, then you can be united. That's what that means. This is the picture that we're going to get, that we get all through the New Testament, and that once again we're going to get First Peter. It was all wrapped up in First Peter. Remember all of these themes of the suffering saints. The audience is a Christian population, mixed Jews and Gentiles spread around the modern area of Turkey. He used a lot of Jews. Wow, I went way long today, the second service. See, I did forget how to do this. I've already, I'm, I'm almost out of time. I haven't even hit first, second Peter yet. I'm going to say first Peter almost every time, by the way, for a while. Just, just sorry. I mean second, unless I don't. He's encouraging them, because like right now, I mean first. This is first Peter. He's encouraging them as they're facing ever-increasing persecution, somewhere around AD 64. <clears throat> the persecution under Nero was increasing. The pagan superstition of the time said, hey, when bad things happen, the gods are angry. What are the gods angry about? Well, they may be angry about these people who say there's only one God, that there's not a whole bunch of gods, so we should persecute them. And that's what was happening. He's encouraging them to remember who they are in Christ's chosen people, priests, temple. And he's using Jewish language, I think, partially to require the Jews and the Gentiles to talk. Because only the Jews understand some of this language, and the Gentiles are going to have to have it explained to them. Second Peter has a little bit of a different background. There's very little about suffering in Second Peter. There's no real conversation on prayer, no conversation on baptism, no conversation on the Holy Spirit. Well, without those things, you don't have a First Peter. That's what First Peter is. Some people think that it's written by someone different because it's so different, which I think may be great textual analysis. I don't know, but it's terrible psychology. That's not how this works. It's, it's vital to see. I want you to listen. These are the two kind of theme passages that, that Peter is kind of using. These are kind of the thesis for why, for sec, why Second Peter is written. Second Peter um, 1, 12 and 14. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. If you're an established Christian, Second Peter is for you. I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. Ask yourself, if you're writing your children a, a letter on their birthday, how different would it be than the letter you would write to them on your deathbed? I think a big part of the difference between 1 Peter and 2 Peter is that 2 Peter thinks he's about to die. He's, about to, he's writing a letter from the position of, God has already told me, I'm not much longer going to be here. There's a different tone to the feel. I do also, my personal opinion is also that there is a different scribe. There's a different writer who's writing down Peter's words, which of course means he's going to use different language and maybe even in translation. He says again in 3.1, This now is the second letter I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of a reminder. 
See, here we are again. We need these reminders. We need to be stirred up, taught, and reminded. There's new understandings and there's old understandings, and he wants both to be mixed together for us. Chuck Swindoll, talking about this letter, says that it's filled with warning, remi- warnings, reminders, and promises. They're all held together with the concept of diligence. Stick with it. Hang in there. Don't give up. And when you put all these together, you end up with something called hope. After, after reading New Testament, uh, reading, sorry, after reading N.T. Wright's biography of Paul, I was impressed by how often the, Paul that life, the, the life that Paul lived is this restoration life, coming back coming back, coming back, coming back. Restoring churches, restoring friendships, um, restoring relationships. That is so us. That's how we live. So let me read the first couple of verses and just reference them and then move along for today. So we always get a from. Who's it from? It's from Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. And yes, it's Simeon, not Simon. It's the Hebrew spelling, which is only used at least uh, maybe only one other time. The word of a servant is doulos, not diakonos. It doesn't just mean someone who serves. It means someone who their identity is as a bondservant, more like slave. Not only is he a slave, but he's an apostle, an apostle one sent. I don't even think the order of that is accidental. He is a slave, he's a servant of Jesus Christ, and he is a messenger of Jesus Christ. To those who have obtained, now we've got to take a second and reference this word right here. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. (coughs) There we go. Now, we see the word obtained. We've obtained it. What do you automatically think he means here? What's our mindset automatically? Obtained it means what? Earned it. Can you imagine the Apostle Peter of all people saying that we've earned righteousness? Of all people, would Peter say that? No. There's no way that's what he means here. And in fact, it isn't. This is one of those cases where they could have used a different word and it would have been okay. The word here is this, not the word earned. In fact, it's intentionally not the word earned probably. It's the word for allotted to, bestowed upon. That's important. That's actually what this word means here. To those who have had bestowed upon them a faith of equal standing with ours. So who is ours? I have an opinion based on what I just told you a minute ago. See, Peter reported to the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, and he got pushback from this group called the Circumcision Party. Quite a party, huh? The Circumcision Party, who are saying that Peter and that that Paul coming in and Peter and these others, that that they're, they're not serious enough about Jewish law and Jewish tradition. So Peter gets up and makes a statement about his interaction with Cornelius, the centurion, and and how that played out and what God did for him. And he unpacks the entire thing. I mean, go back to Acts chapter uh, 10 if you want to read that. But Peter makes this proclamation and kind of wraps up with this verse, Acts 11, 17. If then God, who gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in the way and stand in God's way? Peter's referencing a total shift in thinking and has created a shift in thinking in the Jerusalem church. They went from arguing to worshiping. Arguing, can the Gentiles come in? To worshiping because God had chosen the Gentiles too in a moment. That's what the gospel should do to us. It's shocking how much of this is the whole idea of the New Testament. 
the blended, the ultimate blended family. Blended by the righteousness or through the righteousness or in the righteousness, however you read it, whatever your version says, I would say utterly dependent on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I'm going to skip Psalm 92 so I can wrap up here. And anyway, we get the greeting. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. We'll talk about whether verses 3 and 4 are linked to 1 and 2. If you read the commentaries, this is a big battle that probably you're not very, very worried about. Regardless, our first thoughts have to be about what knowledge Peter is talking about here. What does he mean? See that phrase? May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Man, we see that in greeting after greeting after greeting in the New Testament letters. But this word knowledge stuck in, we don't see anywhere else. This is going to be Peter, a big part of what Peter is talking about. Our first thought is about what this knowledge is. What is he referencing with the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord? Well, we're going to unpack that over the next few weeks as we however long it takes us to get through 2 Peter. So I want to go back and read back through those, those first two verses of this letter. I want to encourage you to read this letter but from beginning to ending once a week, so long as we're going through it. I'd highly encourage that. It doesn't take that long. Look for the themes. Look for the questions. If you have questions, send them in. Or just stop me in the middle of a sermon and ask if I skip past something. But let me read it to you. So stand, if you will. I'm going to read this to you. And then I'm going to read that hundred and part of that 139th Psalm that Uncle Mac referenced. Because I think maybe when you hear the word knowledge come out of the mouth of a Jewish leader like Peter, maybe the 139th Psalm is something that he's talking about. Simeon Peter a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith, who have bestowed upon them a faith of equal standing with ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of, the Lord, of Jesus our Lord. O Lord, Psalm 139, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. This, I think, is the knowledge, what it means. It's a knowledge that's too high for us. We could never obtain it or attain it, so he brought it to us so that we could have it and live in it. That's the goal. So I'm going to encourage you, um, as we have this time of invitation and response, uh, reaction to God's word, um, whatever the Lord is speaking to you, the reminder, he is who we need, and he has what we need. If you've never put your faith in him to provide those things, I hope you'll do that today. You're welcome to come down here and pray or come talk to any of us or head over to the corner and pray with somebody um, or where you are. Or you can sing if you've been moved to worship uh, by hearing the power of what God has done. You can sing with us. Um, if you've been through the welcome home process and you would like to come and join our dysfunctional family, um, we'd love to do that with you and talk with you about that as well. Um, in a moment, we're actually, for our members, we will stop and, uh, and have a business meeting to vote on our leadership board members. Uh, we'll talk about that more in a second. So I hope you please stick around for that. Um, however the Spirit leads you, I hope you'll respond over these next few minutes.